political issues never threaten the church. Political division always threatens the church. Yeah. Uh, Christians have always grieved under oppression, but the kingdom of God has never been shaken even a little bit by governments taking positions that are contrary to the ethics of the kingdom. So Jesus said the gates of hell itself would not be able to overcome the church, much less a Pontius Pilate, humanism or communism or Republicans or Democrats. It's always division from within that is the real threat. Jesus said that one of our greatest witnesses would be our love for one another. So there's major implications for the mission of the church when we're divided. New Frontiers Church to the Engaging Culture podcast. So what you just heard was a clip from my conversation with Brian Hart. Brian is the executive pastor at One Harbor Church in North Carolina, which is part of the advanced family of churches, similar to Confluence, that PJ Smythe oversees. Well, since we're all in social isolation, maybe you're looking for something to do right now. So I figured I'd throw together a mini podcast for our church. I'll be releasing a new episode each Wednesday for the next three weeks using the audio from the webinars Elena and I have been hosting. And if you like what you hear, it's not too late to join in on the webinars themselves. Elena is actually hosting one on Thursday, March 26th on the local church. And then there will be two more at the end of April. But in the meantime, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Brian Hart and the others that follow. Have a great day, guys. How did you get roped into talking with me about politics of all subjects? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, (laughs) Hello, everybody. Um, So I. yeah, I'm not a uh, I'm not a political guru by any means, but I have um, yeah I've cared I've cared pretty deeply about how our church has um, waded into speaking in yeah how do we as a church speak into issues when they are politicized um, and so I'm one of the guys on our team that um, is generally a part of thinking through how do we respond as a church uh, when things happen. And so I got asked to um, speak at, an, at a, a conference. PJ, I'm assuming maybe some of you know who he is, but he leads Advance, which is a movement of churches that my church is a part of. Um, and so I was asked to speak at an Advance conference about uh, politics. And so I guess one thing led to another, and here I am. <laughs> so, yeah, so I PJ that kind answers of- your question. Yeah, PJ kind of volunteered you, I guess. But um, now I'm I'm really excited about this, and I think this is a, a really an important conversation with regards to how we relate to one another, both within the church and to those outside the church. And I actually, so I, before we even jump in, I want to start off with a quote that I found or I came across in another book, but I think it's really fantastic. So uh, n- some people say that the church and politics shouldn't mix, um, but I think this quote. So it's from the Archbishop of Canterbury. His name is Justin Welby. Um, he was writing for the Huffington Post in 2018. He said, you would have thought that we might have learned, stay quiet, don't collect taxes, and keep your head down. The trouble is that that's not what Christ, Jesus Christ did. He was never party political. No wing of politics, left or right, can claim God as being on its side. 
But Jesus was highly political. He, taught, he told the rich that unlike the poor who were blessed, they would face woes. He criticized the king as a fox. He spoke harshly. He spoke harsh words to leaders of the nations when they were uncaring of the needy. He did this because God cares for those in need and expects us who claim to act in his name to do the same. That means action and words, end quote. So I just think it's a really kind of a cool quote and kind of a good one to start off with. And so I'm going to start off kind of with a simple question for you, Brian, um, which is very simply like, do you believe that as Christians, we should engage with politics? And if so, what, to what extent? Yeah. So um, the short answer is yes. And I, I say that in three respects. Um, first, uh, I think there has been a tendency among uh, Christian leaders to want to withdraw from politics. And, and in a lot of those ways, I think, I think a lot of that has been healthy. Hey, we don't want to be partisan. But I think uh, for the everyday uh, churchgoer, I think something that's often forgotten is that the kingdom of God is political. The kingdom of God is not apolitical. So Jesus comes with a kingdom in which he is a king, and there is an ethic to his kingdom. There are, uh, there's a politic associated with his kingdom. So um, I think it's good for Christians to not feel backfooted about the fact that uh, the kingdom of God is political, and it's good for them to have an interest in politics. Uh, secondly, uh, in a constitutional republic, we need citizens to get involved. And so that's, that's the only way it works. And so I think it's good for Christians to care about politics because our whole system of government depends on people caring about politics. Uh, and then thirdly, and then this will be probably, probably the direction that most of our conversation goes today. Uh, while not everyone needs to be involved in the actual mechanisms of governance, the fact is that much of our lives are politicized. And so even a conversation with a friend about an issue that has been politicized is itself an engagement in uh, politics. And so again, that, that's the one that I, I think will, that, that's, the, that's the one of the three we'll probably be, be talking about. I, I have zero experience in political activity, uh, but I do care deeply about how Christians engage with one another and with uh, unbelievers mm -hmm. uh, on political matters um, because no one can avoid it. Um, and so I don't think that, you know, I'm not sure what everybody was expecting coming into this. Um, I don't think that this conversation is necessarily going to help someone think about how to engage in political activity per se. I do help. I do hope that it might help some of us think differently about how to engage with other people on uh, various political issues, because I think there are some major obstacles that we're confronted with and that can make it very difficult to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good point. That's one of the things that we talked about. We're not here to make a strong statement one way or another. We're really about having a discussion about what healthy relationship with our politicized culture looks like and how to engage in those healthy political conversations with um, one another, both inside the church and outside of it. So yeah, so you alluded to a couple obstacles um, that you've identified that we face as believers. And the first one that you explained to me was an unhealthy marriage of political and religious conservatism. Can you elaborate on that a bit and maybe explain how this happened? Yeah, so um, I don't want to insult anyone's intelligence. Uh, this may be something that we all are very well aware of and we take for granted, but my experience has been that this is something that Christians are oftentimes very blind to, and that is that uh, uh, religious conservatives 
were not always aligned with the Republican Party, and then all of a sudden they were. And that goes back to, uh, I mean, there's more than one way to tell the story of how this happened, but it certainly at least goes back to the 1970s uh, when Jerry Falwell established the uh, Moral Majority, which was a uh, political organization geared at getting Christians uh, involved in public and uh, public matters, policy matters, social issues. Um, and, and that organization and some others that were very similar to it that, that came along later uh, led to the rise of what has been called the Christian right. Now, the Christian right aligned very well with the direction that the conservative Republican Party had been going since probably the 1960s. There was a, there was a new brand of conservatism afoot that had a more uh, populist tone. It was more prone to focusing on emotional and social issues. And that, that brand of conservatism saw itself as a kind of vanguard responsible for fighting against a liberal establishment. And so by the time of Ronald Reagan, this new political right found within the Christian right a uh, very powerful voting base. And so the interests of those two parties very quickly aligned and made for a, a marriage of sorts. Uh, and and that, that union was so strong, it, I think it's very hard for the, for, uh, excuse me, it's very hard for those of us born after that time to believe that there ever was a time when things might have been different. Um, and so you have some of these, uh, some of those official organizations like uh, the Moral Majority, they, they did not last very long. Most of them kind of faded by the late 80s and early 90s, but that ideological union remained. And so what you have is um, many mainline Protestant denominations, uh, Roman Catholics, that they don't so strongly identify with the Republican Party, but the evangelical church, which is typically the more conservative flavor of Christianity in the United States, has really been wedded to the Republican Party ever since. Now, I, I want you to understand, I say all of this as an evangelical, and uh, I'm, I'm still registered Republican, although the jury's out on how long that's going to last. Uh, and so I'm, I'm saying as an evangelical and Republican, I think this is a major problem. And the reason for that is that there has been, uh, for three decades, a political party that has essentially laid claim to the gospel for its purposes in really in geographic areas um, that, that cover huge swaths of the United States. Uh, and so the, the consequences of that, I think, should be obvious. There are snakes in the grass, so to speak. There are politicians who use Christianity, the label of Christianity to get votes. And even worse, well, I don't know if it's worse, but, but in a, just as serious, there are voters who think that they are, they are bound to vote in one direction because they are Christians. And then there are non-Christians who are put off by the gospel because they think wrongly that to be a Christian means that they've got to be a, of a certain political persuasion. And these are things that I think you're more like, likely to see, probably not in the Northeast where you all reside. I think where I live, and in the Rust Belt, in the Bible Belt, in the, in the rural South, you're, you're much more likely to, to see these things. And so, I mean, where I live, I'm just being very candid with you, there has been terrible confusion in the church regarding uh, politics. No, I mean, I would say for us too, like I think there's, I've run into different conversations where there's confusion of how, how, how do I justify these various different things? But, um, before we go on to that second obstacle, 
I wanted, I wanted to ask you, and, and you don't have to go too in depth with this because I know we have still a lot to kind of cover, but um, briefly, what would you say is an important first step in addressing this to potentially overcome this obstacle? Yeah, so I think if, if we're going to talk about how do we overcome the obstacle, the fact that these two entities are wedded together, you know, the, the Christian right, the political right, I think honesty and awareness are a big first step. Um, I think the minute that Republicans, and I don't mean the Republican Party, I mean re Christians who identify as Republicans. Mm -hmm. I think the minute that they can acknowledge that they don't actually have an exclusive hold on the gospel would be a good thing, and it would be a good thing for their own party. I think yeah. something we see in redemptive history is that God opposes anyone who uh, manipulates his message for their benefit. And so I think that a lot, of the, a lot of the problems here really come from blindness, and that can be willful or ignorant. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, and so now, so getting back on track, the second obstacle that you explained to me, and this was honestly, for me personally, was probably one of the biggest, like, wow, like eye-openers, which was that you said that, it, that we as a people – just in general, don't always see the difference between political issues and political philosophy. Explain what, what you mean by that. Yes, yeah, so I'll explain what I mean by that, and then I'll try to explain why I think it's a major problem. Uh, political parties and politics in general have underneath them a philosophy of governance. So the way in which we think about governing informs our approach to all manner of issues. Political parties are not typically formed around an issue like abortion, but they are formed around people who have similar convictions related to the most fundamental questions of governance. What does the government exist to do? What should the goals of a healthy society be? And uh, I think that our most fundamental assumptions, which which we can often have without even realizing what they are, I th and that's that. I think that's an important thing to understand is that we we actually all come to the table with assumptions that we don't even know that we have. Hmm. And I think it takes a lifetime to discover the assumptions that you, you are coming to the table with, not just in terms of politics, but in life, all of life. We have we very strong feelings about things, and we don't always know what those things are. Uh, we have not always articulated those feelings. But um, our, our most fundamental assumptions can be very influential uh, in the way that we approach everyday life. Um, so by way of analogy, um, like in the church world, if you assume that people are born sinful, which is to say you assume the doctrine of original sin, you just take it for granted, that, that really shapes how you do ministry in like a bunch of very practical ways. It would affect how you do ministry to, like we have an addiction ministry. Uh, it would affect how you do ministry to addicts. Um, because if you believe in the doctrine of original sin, then actually drug addiction is not the chief problem. It's a fruit of a greater problem. Yeah. Whereas if you didn't believe in the doctrine of original sin, if you believed in what's been called Pelagianism, which is that people were born uh, morally neutral, ethically neutral, um, and there's no inherent problem like in their nature, if you think that people are just born good, then it, it will – Again, it will shape the way that you, you do things to include, for instance, ministry to uh, drug addicts. And so anyways, the same is true in politics. The assumptions are key. 
they are the framework of, of, uh, of the philosophy that you start with. And that philosophy goes on to shape the approach that we take to various issues. The thing is, most people choose their political party not based on a philosophy of governance, but based on issues they feel strongly about, such as abortion, the environment, caring for the poor. And the result is when we start with the issues, we end up demonizing the other party because we think, well, how could they not care about this very important issue? And so most voters have a definition of political parties that's based on issues. And so the result is that uh, psychologists have noted that uh, people's political beliefs have become very similar to their religious beliefs. So if you're a Republican, you think about a Democrat in the same way an Israelite would think about a Philistine. Wow. Yeah, that person is opposed to the people of God and vice versa. Um, it's, in fact, it's, it's been demonstrated that for, for most people, their political beliefs are often not based on objective facts. Their, their uh, political beliefs are not based on sort of a reasoned approach to it, really anything, uh, but, a, but on a much deeper sense of morality that they themselves are not always able to explain or put into words. Mm. And, and, a, and a part of that is because their approach to politics is framed on issues, issues that often rightly evoke from us uh, um, gut instincts. Political philosophy, though, is not nearly as black and white as a lot of the, the issues might be. Uh, political philosophy is, is um, I would say, much more gray. The thing is, that's what everything else is based on, yeah. uh, is, is these fundamental um, assumptions about society. So, uh, Isaac, do you, uh, do you want to put up that graphic? Maybe yeah. we can... Um, so, Isaac's going to put up a graphic that I thought might be helpful for you to see. Now, th now this image is... Um, this is an intense image. We're not going to get through it. It's certainly not easy to digest. Yeah, I'll send, I'll, send this, I'll send this all to you guys later too, so you can take a look at it in more detail if you want. But he's going to talk through a little bit. So I think an image like this can be really helpful in discovering um, some of the fundamental assumptions that the, the right and the left typically have and how, and how that goes on to affect all kinds of things that the right and the left believe. Now, the first thing I'll point out is whoever made this, as brilliant as this graphic is, I don't know why they got the colors reversed. Um, <laughs> but uh, that being said, the rest of it is pretty good. Uh, so at the top, I'm just going to, I'm going to pick out like one example of what we're talking about. We're not going to talk through this whole chart. You can look at it later. One example of what we're talking about underneath the pillars, there are kind of five pillars, that, like little pictures of pillars at the top. And underneath there are some different things. On the, on the most inside, you see, the, you see focus. So on the left, focus is society. And on the right, focus is on the individual. Now, um, that drives a lot. So on the left, what the left is often doing is they're not, they're looking, they're kind of looking at how people organize corporately. And so that there's always a corporateness to their answers to social, to, to, to uh, social problems. The right tends to have a more individualistic approach. And so there is an individualized response to social problems. Now, I would say those are not clearly right or wrong. Those are just different mm -hmm. emphases, but it affects everything. So let's, let's look down now to, um, if we go down to beliefs, uh, there's like a, a kind of looks like a bubble that's coming out of a person and um, it says beliefs. They're kind of middle of the page. 
And under beliefs, there's a few different things there. And, and very middle, you, you see criminals. Now on the left, uh, because we think primarily of um, the nation as a whole and its corporate, criminal activity is typically seen as a result of systems that, that are broken. And so criminals are often emphasized as social and economic victims. Now that is not to say that every Democrat thinks that um, if you do something wrong, you're just a victim. But you, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that you can all think of various ways yeah. that um, more progressive policy tends to yeah. acknowledge the fact that criminals are often victims of social structures. Because again, there is a focus on society. Now, if you look over on the right, uh, criminals are people who, uh, it says they're choose to be criminals. A, a different way of saying that would be on the right, criminals are taken to be people who have made bad choices. So there's an individual who has chosen to do the wrong thing because again, there's a focus on the individual. Uh, so again, that does not necessarily mean that every Republican or, or liber you know, conservative libertarian or you know, whatever your flavor is, it doesn't mean every conservative uh, fails to appreciate that there are people who do bad things because bad things have been done to them. These are generalizations. Um, so I, I don't know if that, if you're sort of tracking with where I'm going there. Um, I'm trying to. I think that's really helpful, um, Brian. I mean, I, there's like, first off, there's a lot that you that you kind of just kind of went through with us, both with the graphic and um, before that. So I kind of want to back up a few steps a little bit um, and just ask, so, you, you talked a little bit about the fact that a lot of our decisions are kind of, they're kind of coming from these gut instincts. Um, and if this is true that we kind of, that so much of our decisions and, and kind of where we, where we go are based off our gut instincts, how do we put ourselves in a better position so that we're looking at things objectively rather than just being driven by those gut instincts or rather how do we take ourselves out of sort of this matrix if you will and ensure that our opinions are being influenced first and foremost by god's word rather than our natural whatever gut instinct and that's not to say that our gut instincts are always bad or wrong but i think that's a really important piece to understanding this yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I'm going to answer that. Let me, I, um, because of the screen sharing thing, I just kind of lost track of some of my notes here. So yeah, no I'm going to answer that. But first, let me just, let me just to sort of close the loop on, on the previous question, okay. which was around the, the, the political philosophy and the issues. Yep. Um, I think that uh, if, you know, you, you, you probably have a very strong feeling about some of the issues that we just were looking at. You know, crime crime's just an, one example, but you probably have um, strong feelings about a number of other, other issues. And, and what happens is that Christians on both sides of the political spectrum will go to those issues, and then they will essentially weaponize the Bible to defend their views. And Yeah, yeah. And when I say weaponize, maybe that sounds a little extreme, but I think, I think you weaponize the Bible when you bring the Bible to bear on an argument without being faithful to what the whole Bible says, and you kind of cherry pick it. I, I think yeah. that's an example of weaponizing the Bible because 
you kind of point out someone else's fall while ignoring your own. Yeah. So, um, like as an example of just the, the way that in, in within Christianity, we've kind of got this left right thing really muddled. Um, the, there's a question, did, did Jesus come? Like, why did you, how, how do you answer the question about why Jesus came? Mm-hmm. Did he come to forgive people for the bad things that they did or to set free those who were captive in some kind of bondage? And the answer is he obviously came to do both. Yeah. The conservative right of which I, I am a part of the conservative right, we will always point to Jesus and say, oh, well, he solves the problem of guilt. He came for transgressors. You can be forgiven. The left, on the other hand, will always point to Jesus and say, well, he solves the, the problem of bondage and slavery. He came for victims. You can be liberated. And so I think if you were a Christian, you should at least be, even if you have very strong feelings about some of these issues, you should be able to empathize hmm. with with both sides of, yeah. um, of, of political philosophy, especially in regards to these things where the Bible makes it, I think, easy for, for us to, to do that. Uh, there are cases to be made for and against you know, gov- um, philosophies of governance, uh, but the Bible does not make only one side. So I think the problem is when we start with issues and we work backwards, we can sometimes make the Bible give endorsements that it doesn't give. Yeah. Um, so like with abortion, uh, I'm convinced it's a moral issue. So for me, that is a, that's a close-handed issue. It's one I feel very strongly about that it's wrong. I think it's evil. So I, it's, a, it's a social issue that I, I, I care strongly about. But it would be easy for me to make assumptions about Democrats, unfair, unbiblical assumptions about Democrats because their party is pro-choice. There are pro-life Democrats who on that issue disagree and yet would hold to the underlying philosophy of governments that Democrats have. And a pro-choice Democrat may be wrong about abortion. That does not make him or her wrong about everything. Yeah. So I, I guess where I was trying to go with this is that um, having even a, sh- a shallow appreciation for these philosophical differences can guard against thinking that one party is more or less biblical than another or, or more or less godly. I, I think that we should avoid doing that. Um, now to answer, sorry, to answer that, uh, that other question, how can we, um, you ask it how, how oh, yeah. the gut instinct thing. Yeah. yeah. So basically how, if we are, if we're driven by those gut instincts, how do we make sure we're sort of taking ourselves out of yes. that matrix, if you will, of just believing and being followed by that gut instinct and looking more objectively at what does God's word say and, and letting ourselves be influenced first and foremost by that. Yeah, is that even I, that's a great question. Yeah, that, that is a great question. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a few minutes from the other side, which is not, you know, how do we handle our own gut instincts, but how do we handle other people's gut instincts? Mm. Um, I, I think we have to acknowledge that the voices that we like are the voices that we're most influenced by. In other words, we will rarely have a rational response to an argument or point of view coming from someone who triggers a reaction of disgust or dislike. So if you want to be open to, and this, this, you have to be honest with yourself about this. If you want to be someone who's open to ideas, then you have to hear the best version of those ideas from people you can actually respect. So uh, like someone who's maybe a Democrat or on the left, if you hate Ben Shapiro and he (laughs) says something that you disagree with, well, do you disagree with him because you really think that he's wrong 
Or is it just because you hate Ben Shapiro and therefore you will find a way to, you know, find a hole in his argument just because he's Ben Shapiro. So until yeah. you hear the argument made by someone that you do respect and perhaps even like, it's almost impossible to know how convincing that argument really is. So I think, hmm. I think the only way to get out from this is by doing a lot more homework. You, you have to do the hard work of hearing the best version of an argument from someone who you can actually respect. And then I think you're, you'll be in a much better position to weigh it out rationally. Uh, because again, we are, we are just very, very emotionally intuitive people. Even those of us, yep. like my, my wife, my wife's very emotional. She says, I'm like a robot. You know, I'm, I'm not operating on the same emotional plane as her. But even this is true for me. This is just true for human beings. We're very intuitive creatures. And so the way we feel about someone really affects how we hear what they have to say. Wow. Interesting. I mean, you're talking about, and I, we're spending a lot of time on this particular one, because again, I think it's really important, but um, you're talking about the fact that issues oftentimes drive us, but it's really party philosophies or political philosophies. So my question, my next question is how, what do you think it would look like to have parties or political parties defined by philosophy rather than these issues? Because the thing is like when we, if I go up onto a, a candidate's website right now, I'm going to see one of the first things I see is issues and I click on the issues and that's going to define all the various, where their stances on are those issues. So what does it look like to have political parties defined by philosophy rather than issues? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think to be candid, I, I think they already are. The problem is that voters are not educated and education doesn't sell. Hmm. Politicians yeah. need your vote, not your understanding. <laughs> yeah. So they don't sell you the philosophy, at least not much. They sell what gets the biggest reaction, yeah. which are the issues. And sometimes, I mean, politicians have room to maneuver. So, um, especially if you look at uh, congressmen, congressmen are elected every two years. There's a reason for that. Senators are elected every six years. Congressmen and women are elected every two years. The reason for that is senators are meant to be more forward thinking, not as glued to the voice of the people, so to speak. Hmm. Uh, Congress in, in the, the other house, you know, congressmen, by virtue of the fact that they're running for election every two years, they cannot afford to do anything that goes against the populist wishes of the people. Hmm. So their take on issues is going to be very much sort of in the current. So they're going to be maneuvering on issues all the time. Yeah. So if you're like looking at a congressman and what their stance on the particular issue is, that's not always going to even be a good representation of what their party stands for. It's a much better representation of what they think is going to get them elected. Wow. Interesting. Um, yeah. And that's almost, by, and that's almost by design. I mean, that's the, the, uh, the, the founders that, that were, the way our government is set up is brilliant. I mean, it's not, it's not perfect in the sense of, you know, it's not Jesus Christ, but I mean, it's pretty good. <laughs> and, uh, and so that a lot of that is by design. Interesting. All right. So let's, let's move on to the, the third obstacle, um, which is that you said that the Bible doesn't give much guidance on how Christians should engage with politics. Can you expand on that point a little bit? Yeah. So this is like a, I don't know that this is a, as much of a problem as, um, so I, I kind of said this is an obstacle we're dealing with, um, is that the, the Bible does not give guidance on how Christians should engage in politics. I think the reason that it, it, it is a challenge is because a lot of Christians act like it does. 
The hmm. Bible was not written with a constitutional or democratic republic in mind yeah. Yeah. and thus offers zero practical guidance on how uh, 21st century Americans should approach the idea of self-government. There was no, there yeah. was no context for that in the early church. In fact, I, so, I mean, yeah, governing is complicated, right? The New Testament is, is mainly focused on helping Christians understand how to submit to their leaders in exile more than it is written, you know, to help them lead their governments in exile. There was yeah. no reality to Christians being in leadership, Christians running for office, or even affecting any kind of public policy at the time that the New Testament was written. So I think because of that, Christians should have a very open hand yeah. when it comes to governing philosophies, or at least we shouldn't be so quick to, um, again, give endor biblical endorsements uh, because the Bible just doesn't do that. And so I, I think we should be careful before we, we do that. Yeah. But yeah, so- Yeah, and I think it's- Go ahead. I was just gonna say, I think- um, I think when Christians get that wrong, what we just talked about, uh, when they forget that the um, when they forget that the Bible doesn't give endorsements and they begin to give biblical endorsements that go beyond what Scripture actually says, that creates a real problem. Which is which is really, I think, the, the fourth and final obstacle that we're confronted with when dealing with, you know, how how do we how do we grapple with issues among brothers and sisters and the outside world. That have become politicized, yeah. And th and that is this: that um, when we when we speak of things that threaten the church, political issues never threaten the church. Political division always threatens wow. the church. Yeah. And this is something that I I think Jerry Falwell and his Moral Majority got wrong. I think they, I think they forgot about this, um, or di they didn't anticipate what would come. Uh, Christians have always grieved under oppression, but the kingdom of God has never been shaken even a little bit wow. by governments yeah. taking positions that are contrary to the ethics of the kingdom. Mm -hmm. So Jesus said the gates of hell itself would not be able to overcome the church, much yeah. less a Pontius Pilate or a Nero or marauding armies or secular humanism or communism or Republicans or Democrats. Uh, it is, it's always division from within yeah. that is the real threat. And I think that's what the New Testament says. It is the wolf yeah. who divides the flock and warnings abound Old Test in the Old Testament and New Testament about the temptation to turn on each other in bitterness and hatred. Jesus said that one of our greatest witnesses would be our love for one another. So there's mm. major implications for the yeah. mission of the church when we're divided. And then beyond that, even, I mean, God explicitly says that he hates division simply for what it is. Proverbs six says that there are, there are six things that the Lord hates. And the last one is uh, one who sows discord among brothers. So yeah. I think, uh, and this is uh, it, like, when I think of my church, you know, I'm, I'm just a pastor of, of one church. It, my concern for our church is not how the people in my church vote. It is how they relate to other Christians who vote differently than them. Yeah. That is a major concern. Yeah. And, uh, and I, think it's, I think it's a problem. It's something that we're confronted with all the time. Republicans thinking that Democrat, Democrats can't really be Christians and thus condescending to them hatefully. At every, I mean, the, the Facebook feeds of the people in my church nauseate me when they <laughs> talk about politics. Or, or, uh, and it goes the other way too. Democrats 
you know, uh, or progressives kind of withholding love and charity, you know, gossiping and slandering uh, brothers and sisters in Christ because yeah. they're of a different political persuasion. Uh, the issues that we disagree on are of far less consequence to the health of the church than the manner in which those disagreements are actually handled. And yeah. they're being handled badly by yeah. many people in our churches. Yeah. I, I feel like even feeling convicted myself, like I, I've done this, you know, where I, it's, it's so easy to demonize or to look negatively on me. Like, how can this person believe this, you know, or whatever. And it's, you know, it's in, you know, the high priestly prayer where Jesus is, is calling his, the, the future church to be one, um, to be united, to be one as, as he is one within the Trinity. And, and so, I mean, now we're going to, we're kind of going to shift into strategies now, but before we kind of do that, I do want to just, what are some practical steps? And you can just mention this briefly because this could be an entire sermon, but like, wh- how do we actively pursue unity amongst political differences? Yeah. So, so yeah, we are going to get into some strategies for overcoming the obstacles that we just went through. And I think some of some of the answer to this question is going to be found there. But I think that, I think this is where scripture really speaks directly into our situation. I think scripture tells us that we're to rebuke, but with gentleness, uh, we're told not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. Um, I, you, you can't condescend without exalting yourself. <laughs> uh, we should be <laughs> quick, quick, quick to listen and slow to speak. Uh, we're, so that's, that would be helpful. Uh, we're supposed to remember that we're a new man in Christ. Mm. What God has joined together, let man not separate. We're to do acts of love no matter what. I mean, I think at the end of the day, we're supposed to be like Jesus. So I, I think if we were to act like Jesus, Jesus was kinder to the people who were actually in the process of executing him <laughs> than people in my church are to those who vote differently than them. I mean, think about wow. that. Wow. Yeah. No, that's – or even just within my heart, you know, it's, it's a good thing to, to think of and like, where is my heart in this? Um, so I think that's something yeah. to be thinking about. So it's like, it's one thing for, let, let me just make this practical. It's one thing for me to say abortion is evil. It is so evil. It is wrong. But then I can also, when I think of those, um, I'm going to try not to get emotional when I say this, but when I think about those who conduct the abortions, I can also say, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know. That, that was the posture of Jesus on the cross, you know? Mm. So we can say something is wrong. We don't have to be back-footed about what we believe. I'm not in any way advocating for um, uh, cowardice or uh, a kind of passiveness. I just think we can do a much better job about saying that something is right or wrong and then d- distinguishing that from the person who believes differently than us yeah. and still loving that person not in a suit there. And there's also a way to like put kind of Christianese love on somebody that's actually not love. It's just, it's another form of condescension yeah. um, where it's, where it's really just filled with self-righteousness. I, I think there's a way to really show charity and graciousness to people with whom we disagree. Um, while at the same time, you know, vigorously disagreeing with them. Yeah. All right. So moving into like these final, the, the strategies now. So what, um, what are some of the strategies that we can do to effectively engage with gospel issues when they take into the realm of, of politics? Yeah. So I think that something that's generally good to do, and um, this is true if you're, in, if you're in leadership, this is true if uh, of any kind, 
you know, church leader, or if you, and I'm, I'm assuming, I should have said this at the beginning, but not, really everything I'm saying is being directed to Christians. So this is this advice that I think w- will make the most sense to people who see themselves as followers of Jesus. And so if you're in leadership in the church or in the marketplace or anywhere, even if you're a small group leader, or even if you're trying to just kind of lead someone towards Jesus, you know, through a, you know, a process of discipleship, um, I think one of, the, one of the strategies that's very helpful is to regularly affirm and critique the strengths and weaknesses mm. of both political parties. Uh, I think regardless of how you vote, this just shows that you're thoughtful and that you're not bought because surely we can all acknowledge, I, I, I hope, I hope we can, we can acknowledge that Democrats are not wrong about everything and Republicans are not wrong about everything. Yeah. Even if you think the lion's share of their policies are wrong, I would hope we could agree, especially looking at that sheet, that all of their assumptions, they're not always wrong. Yeah. And so I think it's good to say those things out loud for people to hear them, especially if you're in a position of leadership, uh, which again, I, I think all of us are eventually in a position of leadership of some kind. We have some kind of influence. Yeah. And I think that if you don't want to rub people the wrong way, if you want people to really hear what you have to say about Jesus, you have to keep this in mind. So that means that you know, if a justice issue comes up in conversation, or some, you know, a justice issue needs to be addressed of some kind. I think it's, and I, like, I'll do this. Uh, I know not everyone's a preacher necessarily, but like when I preach and teach, if I felt the need to address, say, a justice issue, I would first take a minute to affirm the kinds of justice that both sides care about. Mm-hmm. I can affirm the kind of justice that Democrats care about, being good stewards of creation and the environment, and the kind that Republicans care about, the sanctity of human life. I can say, hey, the Bible cares about both of these things. Yeah. Uh, remember, people have a, a very strong moral attachment to their politics, which means that it doesn't matter. It actually doesn't. And this, you might not really believe me when I say this at first, but um, <laughs> I think I, I can back this up. It does not matter how well-reasoned you are. If people think that you're against their party, they think that you're against them. Mm-hmm. And a defensive mechanism will kick in and they just won't hear what you have to say the way that you're actually saying it. Wow. Yeah. Um, so again, the, the greater your platform of leadership, the more I would recommend making it impossible for anyone to know how you vote. It's just a recommendation. It doesn't mean it's wrong for people to know how you vote. And it doesn't mean that you have to be a centrist. Perhaps you're not a centrist. Maybe you're very far on the right or you are very far on the left. But if you're a Christian and you want Everyone to hear what you have to say about the gospel. Everyone yeah. you lead. The bigger your platform, that means the more people from more backgrounds that you're likely to be leading. Yeah. And so um, if you want to actually shepherd them, you need them to be able to hear what you're saying. So Tim Keller, I don't know if you're all familiar with him. He's a preacher in, well, he, he led a church called Redeemer in Manhattan. And he's very famous for saying, preach to who you want to be in the room. Mm. Um, you know, so if you want people uh, from the left and the right to come, you got to preach like they're actually there. And then, uh, and, and so I think that's the idea here. Even if you think that your crowd is all conservatives, talk like there's progressives around, you know, uh, show some, and, and eventually progress, you'll find progressives actually want to be around you because even if you're a conservative, a progressive who feels like you, you, you're kind of willing to affirm some of the things that, you, that you're not always attacking straw men, it's, it's going um, to, it's going to, mean a lot. So I think the idea is by 
by affirming and critiquing both sides, even if you're very firmly on one. So again, mm -hmm. I'm very firmly on the right, but I can say, I think the left is right about some stuff. And I think that Republicans have got it wrong about some stuff. I can, I'm, I'm very, it's very easy for me to say that. Um, then I think it proves that my message about Jesus isn't owned by either of those parties. Yeah, no, exactly. That's good. So like, so you have to think, was Jesus a conservative? Well, you know, there are times that he seemed to conserve the wisdom and traditions of his people, but not always. Or alternatively, was Jesus a progressive? Well, there are times that he definitely challenged the status <laughs> quo and progressed into a new kind of, of kingdom, but that, but he was not always a uh, progressive either. And so I think Jesus makes it easy to affirm and critique both sides because I think that's what he typically did in his life and ministry. I think that's that's really helpful. I think one thing that I was hoping that you could kind of elaborate on to on this specific subject is, could you possibly walk us through kind of a real life example of how this would, would look? Um, because when I think yeah. of like affirming and critiquing, like that's just, like it makes sense, but how does that actually look when we, put it into practice. Yeah, sure. So um, let's take an example, like a real time example, socialized healthcare. Now, healthcare solutions are unbelievably complicated. And I am just a pastor. <laughs> uh, based on what little I understand, 100% socialized government managed healthcare seems like, from what I understand, seems like it would in the long run not work out well. Uh, however, for someone who disagrees with me on that, I can first affirm the following. It is noble to desire that everyone has access to good health care. Capitalism, in my opinion, may be better than socialism, but capitalism is also not perfect. I can admit easily that there are injustices and abuses and I can't wait for Jesus to come back so we can get rid of all the isms. <laughs> I, don't have to, I don't have to start with the assumption that the person who disagrees with me has a character defect in which he or she just wants people to be lazy. And, and that, that is what you will often hear. And this is, uh, this could be, this is another one that could be its own kind of sermon. And I, I am particularly <laughs> passionate about this. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the language of an ad hominem. An ad hominem is, a, is a, a form of rhetoric in which you respond to an argument by attacking the person rather than the argument. So what conservatives like me will do is when, when people argue for socialized anything, they'll say, oh, they're just lazy. So that's an ad hominem. So we haven't dealt with the argument on its own terms. We're talking about the character defect that we've imagined in the people. I think oh, yeah. in general, we should never assign motives to other people. This is beyond politics. In general, you would be amazed how often you and I ascribe motives to other people. And the more you think about this, the more you realize that you do it. Wow. And it's you, you and I barely understand the motives of our own hearts. So why would we be so quick to think we know the motives of other people's hearts? And yet we do it all the time. And, yeah. and so this is particularly true in, in, in politics. So if I can avoid doing that, um, and I can, before you know, before responding to someone who ab is an advocate for socialized healthcare, if I can first sort of affirm what I give them the benefit of the doubt, I, I'm going to assume they're not lazy. I'm going to assume they want society to flourish. I'm going to assume lots of good things about them. I'm in a, I'm in a much better position to have an attentive audience when, um, 
when I explain why I think that maybe their, their motives are probably pure, I think their solution is just a bad one. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I don't, maybe that kind of puts some flesh on the idea of no, yeah, like I, a firmer critique. Yeah, I think that I know. I think that that does really help. Um, I, so then my follow up to that then is what hap- what do you do when faced with a discussion where someone legitimately believes that one side or the other is just wrong about everything? And I say that I ask this because I've experienced this myself. I shared a very different viewpoint and perspective on literally everyone where it was it was an almost completely hostile environment for me to be in now or to to express an opinion in it's like literally impossible for them to see the other side as you know legitimate as having anything good to say so how do you deal with or not deal with is probably the right wrong word but how do you engage with a healthy conversation with someone that believes or feels that way does that make sense did i kind of word that well yeah yeah and so we're gonna yes um, so there's, there's two things here. There's, and I want to make sure I'm understanding the question correctly. Okay. So the one question is, what do you do when you feel like there's nothing good to say about the other person's side? <laughs> and then I think the question you're asking is how do you deal with someone else when they clear, when they have nothing good to see on your side? That, it's the second one there that you're asking, right? Yes. It's the second one that I'm asking, but if you want to hit on the first, yeah. go for it. Well, so in regards to the first, um, I think that um, there's o- there should always be something in an argument, like no argument that anyone makes is 100%, 100% from Satan, right? Like yeah. yes. there's generally something <laughs> in every argument that you can look at and say, I agree with that. Yeah. And I think in, whenever you do conflict resolution of any kind, to include just talking about politics with people who disagree and are very emphatic in their disagreement. Uh, like if I'm talking with somebody that, I disagree with feels like everything the other person believes I can still generally find something mm-hmm. I can build a bridge and I yeah. start with the bridge yeah. and I try to cross the bridge. And so I think that's key. Um, I think when we're talking about the, the other side, well, that, I think that kind of goes into this next, uh, this next strategy. So I think this, the second strategy for overcoming all the obstacles we already talked about mm-hmm. is to, uh, before you ever engage with someone who thinks differently than you do, and before you ever try to present an alternative view or, or even change their mind, mm-hmm. you should first put their argument in the best possible light yeah. and articulate it to their satisfaction. Okay. It is very easy and ineffective to critique straw men. And we do that all the time. Most of us do that whenever we, when we talk about, uh, even, I mean, even in the church, when Protestants talk about Almost, uh, I, I grew up in a Roman Catholic community. My, my father is a Roman Catholic. Uh, now, I'm not, and I disagree with a lot of things that Roman Catholics believe, but like most of the people in my church, when they criticize Roman Catholics, they're just criticizing straw men. They have no idea what they're talking about, um, and, and, it, and it shows, and if they were to talk to a Roman Catholic, it would show. It, uh, it shows that you don't understand, or maybe you don't even want to understand um, and again, if you want people to actually be open to changing their minds, mm-hmm. you need more than reason. There's a, a book uh, called The Righteous Mind by a guy named Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. I cannot recommend it strongly enough. He is a, 
uh, I don't know if he would consider himself an atheist or an agnostic, but he's definitely one of those two. I just can't remember which it is. And he's a Democrat. And uh, he studies moral psychology. And he, is, uh, he offers an enormous amount of evidence in his book that moral and political judgments are initiated in the part of the brain that is intuitive and that reason is most of the time used post hoc or after the fact yeah. to justify what we have already decided we are going to believe. And this happens thousands of times a day. You just make, think about how often you make decisions. You have to make a decision about which sock to put on first, whether you're right foot or your left foot. You don't actually think about that. <laughs> you don't reason out the pros and cons about which sock. You just go with gut instincts on like thousands of things all the time. Now, if somebody were to call you on it, you would try to give an explanation, maybe, uh, uh, on, and the more important the issue is, you would try to give an explanation. But, but see, most of the time what happens and, and what um, Jonathan Haidt talks about is that th the way that your brain works, you don't have the bandwidth to make reasoned decisions for all the things that you choose to do and to believe. Yeah. Um, and so when it comes to morals and politics, most of our opinions are formed by gut instincts. And, and then we, we create these, these reasonable arguments after the fact to defend what we've already decided that we're, we're gonna believe. Um, so if you're going to criticize someone, if you're dealing with someone who like you dis they, they disagree with everything you're going to say, you have to deal with their intuition first. That means you have, to, you have to make an appeal to their gut. You have to make an appeal to their instinct. You have to make an appeal to their, their emotions. And here I think we see some of the wisdom of 1 Corinthians 13, that truth without love is mm. noise to the psychology of the brain. Yeah. It does not actually, it's, 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 it's offensive. Um, oh, I think it was one of the, um, I think it was Pope Benedict who said, uh, I'm freewheeling now. Truth, uh, truth is necessary, but without love, it's unbearable. Yeah, that, mm. that's it. Truth is necessary, but without love, it's unbearable. Mm. So people cannot hear you if they don't think you like them or if they think that they just don't like you. This is why no one's mind has ever been changed by cable news. <laughs> People who watch both, it's, it's those, those um, echo chambers. No, one, no, let, no progressive ever watched, you know, Sean Hannity and was like, oh my gosh, all these years, I, I never considered the evidence. And that's never happened. And if it has, it's the exception that proves the rule. I mean, it just, that's, not, that's, not how, that's not how people work. So when you take someone's argument and you put it in the best possible light, when you take the time to prove that you actually understand what they're saying and you can say it in such a way that they say, yes, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. It's actually a way of loving. It, it, it's a way of loving them. You're taking yeah. the time to understand them. It's, it softens their, in, their uh, intuitive and emotional response to you, which then makes that logical and reasonable part of the brain more willing to, to engage. Um, Jonathan Haidt, again, gives a ton of evidence about this in research that has shown that most of the time when people change their mind about politics or religion, 
it is almost always through relationships with family and friends. Yeah. Oh yeah. Because those are people who love them. Now it can happen else. else. I'm, I'm not trying, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but in general, the way that people's minds are changed is through relationships with people who love them. And so uh, taking the time to express an opponent's view in such a way that you're thoughtful and mindful, you're using their language, you're not making straw men. Once you've done that, man, you are in so much of a stronger position to respectfully critique it. Yeah. And I think you, you have a, a much better audience. You, you're, you're more likely to have, have won some credibility. Yeah. Um, all right. So you have your last two sort of strategies kind of fit together in a, in a leadership category. So can you just talk about those as we kind of come to a close and wrap up here? Yeah. So, um, so these two, the last two strategies do, I think, apply more to people in positions of leadership. Um, but again, I, I think the hope is that most Christians will eventually be leaders of some kind. So I would say, even if you don't feel like you're a leader now, just kind of keep an ear out. Um, so the first one is that I, I, think, I think because of all the things that we just mentioned, we should try to keep our political activism and our shepherding, whatever kind of shepherding that, that is, distinct. Um, so again, as a citizen, you have a right to be an activist, to be involved, to run for office or help someone else run for office. We I would say we need Christians to do that. Uh, but it, it's very easy to bring your activism into your shepherding. Now, again, when I, when I use the word shepherding, I'm not merely talking about proper you know, pastoring with uppercase P. Uh, if you are mentoring someone, you are shepherding them. Yeah. Um, so if you join a campaign to help someone get elected, that, that's a great thing. Um, but, but if you are you're in any form of leadership, or, or mentorship or shepherding of any kind, a parent with a child, you don't want someone to think that your care for them will in any way be influenced by the way that they vote. Yeah. I think there is a lot of room for disagreement on how um, leaders in the church should get involved in politics, like a lot of room for disagreement. It's really be like, so the, the degree to which you should get involved is way beyond the scope of what we're talking about here. Uh, I'm just saying, if you do get involved, I think that your uh, ministry in whatever form your Christian ministry takes, because again, we are all ministers of reconciliation. We are all called to a gospel ministry. Mm -hmm. Your ministry, whatever it is, should not appear in any way to be an arm of your political activity. And most people will start with the assumption that it probably is. Wow. So you yeah. have to bend over backwards to demonstrate that it is not. So that, that's the, the third strategy is to, is to keep our activism, whatever it may be, distinct from our, our gospel ministry. Make sure people are clear about what hat we are wearing and yeah. what, you know, I trust you're following me there. And then lastly, I think we, we must always be reminding one another, and especially those who look to us as leaders, we must always be reminding people that their hope is not in human government. Mm. And I think the, it's one thing to say that actions speak louder than words. So some of the biggest actions that I, I would recommend considering are around election season, because that's typically when you see where people's hope really is <laughs> in terms of their sort of um, human government. 
Uh, when your guy or girl gets elected, you should be careful not to get too ecstatic. When the other guy gets or girl gets elected, you should not let yourself appear to be too emotional or upset. We are allowed, and I think we're even encouraged to engage and to care. And so it, I'm not saying you can't like be happy when your guy wins or be sad when, but I think, I think it should be tempered. I think if you look overly enthusiastic, you might be, you might say, Oh, of course we trust in Jesus, but, but your life will tell maybe a different story. Yeah. You will look like you're, you're where your hope is really set is yeah. on a changing of the guard in Washington. And so I, I think that's, um, I think that's something to be, I think that's something to be careful about. And, and just lastly, um, I know we've, maybe we've gone long. Um, this is something that Isaac and I were talking about. Yeah. And it's, and it's at the end of the day, how should people vote? Now, I think a big part of what, what I've been trying to say here is I never want to be the kind of Christian that tells someone how they should vote. Um, I think there's, I think we should just be very open-handed with that. But one thing I do feel, and I will say is that every Christian, I, and this is, this is my opinion. You're going to, you will find Christians who disagree with me on this, but I'm prepared to go to the mat about it. I feel quite strongly about what I'm about to say. I think Christians should vote their conscience and not be bullied into voting uh, around a sort of systemic plan to like get somebody uh, elected, like there's pressure on them to uh, um, make sure the right guy gets elected. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm being a bit clumsy with this. A better way of saying that would be um, Christians should vote their conscience they should not be bullied into thinking that if they don't vote their conscience, their vote will be wasted. Mm. So yeah. what I heard in the last election that often frustrated me is people felt people said, I felt like I had to vote one of these, these two, Don, Donald Trump or Hillary. Now, I would say if you're a Christian, vote your conscience. So if you feel like, hey, I don't like any of the candidates, and I think the best one is Donald Trump or the best one is Hillary, of, hey, go for it, man. Like, that's, that's your conscience. But what I heard from a lot of Christians that or in my church is like, there was other, there were other people maybe they would have wanted to vote for, but it, but voting for them felt like throwing their vote away. And I would say to that, when you stand before God, you will not be held accountable for who the president of the United States is. It is yeah. God who causes leaders to rise, and it is God who causes them to fall. Amen. Yeah. You will be held to account for what is in your lane of responsibility, and that is your vote. So when I stand before the Lord, I take no responsibility for who the president is. I take all responsibility for who I voted for. Hmm. And so I think if more Christians voted their conscience and trusted the results to the Lord, we actually might see um, things play out differently. I, I get very uncomfortable when people feel like it's, you know, to, I, I think throwing your vote away, I, I don't think that makes sense with the biblical worldview. I think voting is actually a great opportunity to, it's like the, um, if you think uh, maybe by way of analogy of the, um, the widow's mite, what, 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 what difference did that money make? Nothing. <laughs> it had everything to do with her heart before the Lord. It yeah. was an act of worship. And I think voting should be an act of worship like everything else that we do. Yeah. And so even if it does feel like it's a meaningless, what difference is this going to make? Man, it's an act of worship. Go to the Lord and choose who you think God is calling you to vote for. And, uh, and I, I think that if more Christians did that, then we, we might see different results.
I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. If you liked what you hear, tune in next week. I'm going to have Elena's audio from a couple weeks ago on Calling with David Paterka. Have a good day, everyone.